Thank you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4. So we're rounding the corner on closing out the book. If you're looking at your worship guides, you'll notice that they've only given me one verse this morning. Um, I'm not sure what the thinking was on that. I think it might be something on the lines of it would be shorter. Um, but somebody doesn't know the science of preaching very well. Second law of preaching dynamics says that a preacher abhors a vacuum. He just fills it up. Um, so uh, that, that will happen. In all seriousness, this is a very weighty verse. Um, and I am thankful for the opportunity to give uh, some attention to it in Philippians uh, chapter 4. As, you, uh, as we think about the uh, study, it, I've titled the, the sermon, Thinking Rightly About the Right Things. Um, and we had a theme that was given to us as laid out by Pastor Mark at the beginning of Philippians. And let me, here it is. Our life is fulfilling when we joyfully surrender to the will and work of the Lord Jesus as He has ordered it for our good and for His glory. And hopefully this morning, again, you'll see that this, this fits within that, that there's a certain sense of joyful surrender, even a surrender of our minds to Jesus Christ and to the things of God. So let me uh, begin by having us read together Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, then think upon these Things. We've got enough time that I'm going to read it one more time. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, then think upon these things. Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we come to You because You have been kind to reveal Yourself. And You didn't do that just through some series of dreams given over to one person in history. You didn't ask us to have certain feelings that make us feel a certain way and therefore we know about You. You did one of the kindest things You could have done for us. You gave us over Your Word written down across the ages so that we frail men may know about You. And so we gather with respect as the people of God this morning around Your Word. 
Father, we thank you that this is all possible because you are kind to bring us into the fold of God at the incredible cost of your son Jesus. It is his birth that we celebrate because he is our life. He is our life now and he will be our, life, our lives forever. And so we pray that he'll be honored this morning. So Father, I pray that as the word is preached, as these words are considered, that we would be a people who love words. We love ideas. We love to think. Why? Because you commanded us to think. Because you created us by words. And so, Father, would, would you use your word this morning to make us a people who love to think rightly about the right things. We ask all these things to you, Father. We ask them in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our brother, and our Savior. And we pray now that your spirit would bring these about. Amen. Um, I, there's probably some untold rule in preaching. If it is, I, I'm not sure of it, but it says something like, it feels like there's an untold rule, rule in preaching. It says you, you need an introduction that kind of warms people up. Uh, you don't just get out the gate with, with deep stuff. Um, uh, so that's as much as I got, because this is a sprint out the gate. Uh, so I've just broke that rule. If this means that it's a bad sermon to start deep in the introduction, this is a really bad sermon. Um, so, all that said, turn on the juices quick. It's a sprint here at the beginning, but hopefully you'll see the reason for it uh, at some point. So in his book, Bad Religion, this is published in 2012 by New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, he writes that, uh, that Americans are in vast agreement on the fact that America is in decline. And yet while Americans are in agreement that America is in decline, doubt that says there is wide disagreement as to the reason for the, the, the decline with two prevailing theories holding sway. One theory as to the, de the decline is held by the secular left, and it argues that the recent decline in the American ideals is due to its, tor its turn towards an excessive religiosity. They believe, the secular left believes, America has become too religious. The secular left that it claims that issue upon issue, there, there is now a struggle between science and ignorance, between reason and superstition, between the light of progress and, med and the medieval dark. On the other side, the other prevailing theory owned by the religious right argues that the decline is a consequence of our nation falling from the faith of our fathers. They believe that, that his religious believers believe that they have been bullied by the secular elites who have led America away from being that Christian nation which we were founded to be. Dalton points out 
while there's vast disagreement as to why, there actually is a small sort of agreement. That is, both sides blame religion. The secular left blames too much religion. And the secular, I mean, the religious right blames too little religion. But Douthat argues, and I'm inclined to agree with him, that neither one of these is correct. He writes, warning long quote, but it's, it's worth it. America's problem, Douthat writes, isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion. By bad religion, he means, the slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. That, says Douthat, is the problem. The United States, he says, remains a very deeply religious country. And most Americans are still drawing some water from the Christian well. But a growing number are inventing their own versions of what Christianity means, abandoning all the nuances of traditional theology in favor of religions that stroke their egos and indulge or even celebrate their worst impulses. These faiths speak from many pulpits, conservative and liberal, traditionally religious and fashionably spiritual, and many of their preachers call themselves Christian. But they are increasingly offering distortions of traditional Christianity, not the real thing. The mistake of the religious right has been to fret over the threat posed by explicitly anti-Christian foes and forces while ignoring or minimizing the influence that the apostles of pseudo-Christianity exercise over the American soul. This is the real story of religion in America, Douthat writes. For all its piety and fervor, Today's United States needs to be recognized for what it really is. Not a Christian country, but a nation of heretics. Douthat's claim is that America, that Americans aren't nearly as secular as either side wants us to believe. Instead, the only consistent belief pattern among Americans is their adherence to a heretical version of Christianity. This is actually really well supported. It's a 2005 book. It's, it's published by Oxford University Press, written by Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. Their book detailed a major study into American teens and how they think. Here's what they found. They found, by the way, you get the sprint part? Yep, yeah, I promise you, we're getting somewhere, okay? Just hang on, we're almost there. So this study of American teens found 97% of the teens professed some sort of belief in the divine. 
And 71%, so that's the vast majority, reported feeling very close to God. So American teens are not as secular as many believe they are. Yet while the vast majority of teens surveyed self-identified as Christians, their beliefs demonstrated no evidence of a recognizable orthodoxy. Smith and Denton summarized the de facto creed held by the teens in five premises. So this is what, these are the only five things they could find wide agreement on, but they all agreed on them. One, a God, they believe that a God exists who created the world and watches over it. Two, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy, and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in anyone's life until a major problem arises. Five, good people go to heaven when they die. Catch this. Notice, these teens, who 71% consider themselves Christian, hold a set of beliefs that when compared to Orthodox Christianity, is only partially correct about God, almost wholly wrong about man, completely devoid of the mention of Jesus Christ, and therefore absent of anything like a response resembling a life of sacrifice, service, and obedience. Christian brothers and sisters, friends, guests who've come can we heed together the solitary command in Philippians 4.8? Let us think and think rightly about the right things. It is my hope that through a very deep and lengthy introduction, you are now convinced that while thinking well as Christians is important in any age, it is especially important for us in our current cultural context. Philippians 4a begins with the words, Finally, brothers. Finally, brothers. This signals that Paul is intending to bring the book to a close and and he actually will in just a few more verses. But you may also remember that Paul has already used a phrase similar to this at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, finally, my brothers. So why is it that Paul gives us two conclusions? Well, to be real honest with you, I'm not sure. Um, that said, if I had to guess, I don't have to. So since I get to guess, I'm going to guess that it's something like how a mother says goodbye to her kids. You've noticed this. Mothers do this multiple times. There's often a goodbye that is a goodbye of uh, reminders. Um, and then there's a goodbye of warning. So she may begin with a goodbye of warning such as, Goodbye kids, I love you. Don't drive too fast. Watch out for crazy drivers. Don't stay out too late. And they get ready to leave. Bye. Love you guys. Remember, wear your seatbelts. 
Remember, eat your fruits and veggies. You, you've, you've been there, right? Um, maybe it's just my mother. I don't think so, though. <laughs> Paul really doesn't follow a pattern like this in his other letters, but I think that's something like that is what he's up to here. That is, one goodbye is a goodbye of warnings. That was begun in chapter 3, where Paul gives us a series of warnings, and they're major. Warnings like, defend the gospel and the necessity of Jesus Christ. Warnings like humility, and warnings like unity. And then he comes back in chapter 4 with a goodbye of reminders. So I would consider from this point to the end of it his goodbye of reminders. Verse 8 and 9 actually are a single sentence in the Greek. In verse 8, Paul argues that, that he's, or he's telling the Philippians, reminding the Philippians to think rightly. And then in, in verse 9, he is telling them to live rightly. The fact that they're in one sentence, I think, is, is Paul's way of solidifying for us that thinking rightly and living rightly must be coupled together. They cannot be divorced from one another. Now, I've chosen to separate out verse 8 because I think verse 9 actually begins uh, uh, Paul's... Uh, argument of how to live like he lives, practice the things that he does. It'll take us from verse 9 all the way down to verse 13. So in this second goodbye, in this goodbye of reminders, Paul reminds them in verse 8, think rightly. He reminds them in verse 9 through 13, live rightly. And then he reminds them again in 14 through 23, and I say again because it's across the letter, God will provide. I submit that this first reminder to think rightly is met by some of us without even a category in which to place it. Like a child might be perplexed if his mother were to say to him, make sure you brush your ears. Um, what do you mean brush my ears? Uh, we don't even have a category for that. I think some of us, when told by Paul, you think rightly, we actually don't even have a category for it. Why? Because we've been immersed in a culture that has no category for right and wrong ways to think about religious ideas. Many situate religious ideas in a manner observed by the great philosopher John Lennon. Um, when he, wrote, or when he uh, wrote in saying, whatever gets you through the night, you can probably finish it, though you might be ashamed. It's all right. It's all right. Whether it be wrong or whether it be right, it's all right. It's all right. I better get some pop cultural credit for that. Um, I just pulled out John Lennon. Um, just one, okay. So when Paul is reminding us to think rightly, we might bristle at even the notion that someone dare, when it comes to our religious ideas, tell us to think rightly. So where's the rub? Why do we feel that way? What's going on? Well, interestingly, 
Paul deals with this in the very first virtue he mentions. In verse 8, there's a list of eight virtues about which believers should think. Eight virtues are values that he commends to them to think on. And it, it is in the presentation of the very first virtue that I think the answer to the question of wherein lies the rub is given. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, think on these things. Paul tells believers to think on whatever things are true. Think on whatever things are true. Well, how does that deal with it? Now, the interesting thing is truth is actually, it's a very complex philosophical topic. And it's funny because it's actually really simple. I mean, truth is that which corresponds to reality. We all know this. So, for example, if you ask me, did you eat the last cookie? That's the claim being put out there. Did you eat the last cookie? Well, if in reality I ate the last cookie and I told you I did eat the last cookie, then that's a true statement. But if I told you I did not eat the last cookie, that's a false statement. Why? It all comes down to does it correspond to reality? In reality, Christianity makes claims. At the center of the Christian message is the virtue of truth. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying Christianity is not simply a culture. It's not a group of people. It's not a time period. It's not a race. Christianity is a set of beliefs, and Christians are those who affirm those beliefs. To be Christian is not to have a certain set of feelings or a certain set of experiences or to, to have, uh, behave in a certain set of ways. No, it is to believe that a certain set of claims are true. Now, I've spoken to many Mormons and Muslims and Jews and Hindus and I've, I've read of many of them. I'm sure you have as well. And they share similar feelings about, about their faith that Christians share about theirs. Many of them have had religious experiences that they believe are genuine, just like other Christians have experiences they believe are genuine. Moreover, many of them have exhibited exceptional moral behavior. That who matches oftentimes exceeds the moral behavior of Christians. But Jews... Mormons, Muslims, and Hindus are not Christians. Why? Because they do not believe the claims of Christianity are true. That is, none of them affirm that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God. None of them affirm that the Bible alone is the supreme, authoritative, sufficient revelation of God to man. These are two essential claims of Christianity. To fail to believe these essential claims is to fail to be Christian, regardless of any feelings or any experiences or any behaviors you have or have not engaged in. And therefore, Paul tells us to think about what is 
true. What is actually real. That is, doctrine for Christians has to be held in a high esteem. And for churches, it has to be valued. Here's a Scottish theologian, a quote from him. He's writing at the beginning of the 20th century. So we're early 1900s. Listen to what he writes. This is James Orr. He's a Scottish theologian. If there is a religion in the world which exalts the office of teaching, it is safe to say that it is the religion of Jesus Christ. It has been frequently remarked that in pagan religions, the doctrinal element, it's at a minimum. The chief thing there is simply the performance of ritual for the pagans. But this is precisely where Christianity distinguishes itself from other religions. It does contain doctrine. It comes to men with definite, positive teaching. It claims to be true. A religion based merely on feeling. Feeling. Writing in the early 1900s. Man, we've got to read more Scottish folks. A, a religion based on mere feeling is the vaguest, most unreliable, most unstable of all things. A strong, stable religious life can be built upon no other ground than on that of intelligent conviction. But the only way that we can think on things that are true is if we know the things that are true and the things that aren't. That is, we must give attention to knowing and believing what it is our faith holds. I think one of the most dangerous heresies of the Christian church today is the idea that we on our own can determine what is or is not true about claims of faith. You could call it me and God theology. Writing in the middle of the 20th century, 1955, a theologian, Will Herberg, wrote this, As much as man needs food to eat and air to breathe, he needs a faith for living. But so long as he pursues this quest in his own self-sufficiency, relying on his own virtue, wisdom, or piety, it will not be God that he finds. He will land on an idol, the self writ large, proje projected, objectified, and worshipped. Me and God theology is always heretical. Teaching and learning theology is the job of the church. It's the work of the church. So, let me cast a vision for us as a church. Can we agree to see ourselves as more than the totality of the members we have on our roll? or the size of our budget, or the programs we have or do not have. And I, I love our vision of outreach and missions, and I concur that it is the main posture and task that should consume our focus. But let us always see the incredible gift we give our community, and especially future generations, in as much as we promote, preserve, teach and encourage right 
Christian doctrine. There have been untold number of beautiful buildings built in the name of Christendom that have lasted just a tad bit longer than their very first attenders. Why? Because more attention was given to the floors and the windows than the doctrine of the church. We can pay off the debt. We can grow our membership. But if we do not teach and promote serious and deep doctrine, we will leave no church worth attending, no gospel worth sharing, and no God worth worshiping. It cannot be a task that's implicitly pursued. It must be explicitly chartered and engaged. It cannot be a vision of the elders only. It has to be a vision of every member. It cannot be completed only when the church gathers and is in session. But it must be a disciplined practice in the lives of every member on a regular basis to learn that which is true and to think often and to think deeply, to think intensely upon these things. Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 is not suggesting he is commanding, think on these things. First and foremost, on that which is true. They gave me one verse and thought this would be short. All right, that's virtue number one of eight. Don't worry, we won't keep the same pace. Uh, The other seven virtues, they're beautiful. These are beautiful. Next one. Finally, brothers, whatever is honorable, think upon these things. So after telling us to think on the things that are true, he now tells us to think on things that are honorable. We're to think on things that promote honor, things that promote dignity and are worthy of respect. We're supposed to spend time and think on these things. Next, finally, brothers, whatever is just, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, that is, we should think on the idea of equity and fairness. We should think about what it means for people to receive the dessert of their actions and do all we can to prevent them from obtaining more or less than that which they deserve. That's what it means for something to be just, for someone to be just. Finally, brothers, whatever is pure, think on these things. Whatever is pure. Those things that are pure are free of defilement. So when a label affixed to a container of sugar makes the claim that the contents therein is pure sugar, it's not making a moral claim upon the the contents in the container. It's making a claim that the only thing in there is sugar. That's what purity is. So he calls us to purity. He's calling us to to think on things that are free of the defilements of the flesh. Finally, brothers, whatever is lovely, think upon these things. 
this word is, is actually not used anywhere else in the entire New Testament. Um, and we can see how it's used in other Greek writings because it's used quite a bit and it's often used to, des to describe that which is beautiful, attractive. This would certainly include and is mostly about beauty and attractiveness of character, of looking at someone and saying their character is unstained, it's beautiful. But it would not preclude thinking on attractiveness and beauty of other things that God has created. Finally, brothers, whatever is commendable, think on those things, those things that are commendable. It's commendable is actually this exact word, also not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but Paul does use it um, elsewhere, something close to it elsewhere, to talk about uh, a word that denotes praise. Make sure I said that right. I don't want you to think Paul was writing, um, that we have records of Paul's writings that are outside of the New Testament. When I say Paul used it elsewhere, he used a different word that is, uh, has a similar root. And it means praise. As a result, we can see what is Paul asking us to do. Think on things that bring praise, that make people want to look at it and say, now that is right. That is good. Then, finally, brothers, if there's any excellence, think on these things. This term carries immense weight in Greek life. If you are Greek, this is the word arete. If you are Greek and you are reading that, you know exactly where Paul's going. It is the word used by Homer, Plato, and Aristotle to describe virtue. That is, the things that are right. So when Paul says, think on things that are excellent, what is he commending us to do? He's saying, put your mind on things that are the top level of goodness. In every respect, good. Anything excellent. And then, if there's anything worthy of praise, here again, he seems to repeat the idea of commendable. That is, things that attract praise, not just for the sake of praise, but because they are rightly due the praise that they get. So these eight adjectives, these describe the, the way we are to think, the things that we're to meditate on, things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. And he's calling us to practice this discipline. But it's interesting. This is the discipline of meditation. What I find so interesting about this is if you've read or done anything with secular meditation, what's the first thing that you're supposed to do? Just in general meditation, free your mind. Just empty your mind, right? Uh, of all these things. Isn't Paul doing the exact opposite? Isn't he actually telling us to fill our minds? He's not telling us not to set our minds on something. He's actually telling us to set our minds on something. I'm telling you, if you're reading a book, I don't care if they sell it at Lifeway, I don't care where they sell it, and the very first thing they tell you to do is to start freeing your mind of stuff, and they're not giving you a place to put your attention on, and that place, if they do give it, isn't the Word of God, 
just put it down. There's a lot of other really good books to read. That was not in the notes, but there you go. That's the truth. Meditation is a discipline that I practice seldom and poorly, much to my shame. I'm going to be honest. It's amazing to me that we live in a day with unfettered access to information and I spend so little time really thinking. My electronic devices, my constant access to the internet with a persistent onslaught of information, breaking news, breaking news. I'd like to break the news. I often feel like a person dying of thirst all the while being drowned by a fire hydrant. I don't need more information. I need some spiritual discipline to stop and drink. I know this when I read about the Puritans. They saw... Better run me out as a preacher already. I'm telling you, if I got up in a, in a, in a Puritan congregation, first of all, I'd have had about another eight hours. I just want to point that out. But if I'd have gotten up in a Puritan congregation, one of the first things I'd have said is, I'm, I'm very poor. I've, I seldom and poorly practice the spiritual discipline of meditating. That is a divine leave. When you get it figured out, come back. They'd have no room for that silliness. They said that meditation is a non-negotiable in the Christian's life every single day. I like what one of the, the, the preachers said. We need to at least meditate twice a day, people. But if, if you can just get in once, we'll start there. Uh, that's what they set the Sabbath aside for. They had seven standard subjects that every day they would pause from every... They would take either a long walk. They were great at bird watching. I mean, just things that I... I abhorred the idea of watching birds. I would rap... No! They, they loved things like this because it slowed down their minds. They had seven standard subjects. Think about this. The majesty of God, the severity of sin, the beauty of Christ, the certainty of death, the finality of judgment, the misery of hell, and the glory of heaven. I'd be a changed person if I spent set aside twice a day and thought through all seven of those with any level of depth. Now how am I going to fit this into my already busy schedule? I love the story of Susanna Wesley. She lived in the 18th century. She's best known as the mother of John and Charles Wesley. Charles wrote a lot of great hymns. 
Um, Charles Wesley, uh, in fact, we sang one of his hymns this morning. That very last one that was so de deep and beautiful, Jingle Bells, Eat Your Heart Out. What is not as well known about Susanna Wesley is the struggles she faced. Her husband, Sam, he was unhelpful. He often left her alone for extended months just because they got in an argument and he didn't like how it ended. He's incredibly difficult to get along with. He had to serve some time in prison because he just didn't pay his debts. Back then, they'd lock you up. All the while, she's left at home with a few, ten children to rear. All the while, dealing with the bouts of grief associated with losing nine children to childbirth. She bore 19 children total. One of her children was crippled. One didn't talk until he was six. Susanna was so desperately sick most of her life. Add on to this, she had the pressure of being a preacher's wife. That's right. Her sweet husband Sam was a preacher. As you can imagine, the flock, they were less than fond of Sam, their preacher. Consequently, they burned down the Wesley home to the ground twice. They killed their dog. They slit the udders on their cow. This woman lived what appeared to be a miserable life. In fact, we were singing that song written by Charles Wesley, we got to the third verse and I thought, i got to know he's talking about his mom. He wrote, Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories know no end. By his life he brings us gladness. Our Redeemer, Shepherd, Friend. Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall, this the everlasting wonder, Christ was born the Lord of all. I've got to think he's thinking about his mama. So this woman, she's got this miserable, busy, stressful life. John and Charles wrote very little about the faith of their father, but they wrote a lot about the faith of their dear mother. And one of the things that impressed them most was how often this woman prayed and meditate. <laughs> they were taught at a young age, if you go by and mama's got her apron pulled up over her head, you leave her alone. She is praying and talking to God. She didn't have a place she could go. She would love an empty room. She just pulled her apron up. And the kids knew, leave mama alone. She's talking to God. And they talked about hearing her call out their names in prayer. My point, if Susanna Wesley can find a little time to meditate and pray, Tim Martin certainly can. As we head towards a conclusion, let me ask you to consider your own heart, your own character. Now think of these adjectives. True, honorable, just, 
pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Friend, how closely do those describe your heart? This should be the aim of every Christian life and every Christian heart. I don't know about you, but my heart is far from that. If the point of this message is go and become that, then I am leaving here amazingly burdened this morning. But the truth is, what the Bible claims, it's actually far worse. Not better. Why? Because those eight adjectives perfectly describe our Heavenly Father. So why is that burdensome? Because Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, some of the most fearful words ever uttered, Ye therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. If we are anything less than perfect, we are rightly to be judged. How terrible is that? How sad is that? The amazingly good news of Christianity is that those adjectives perfectly describe Jesus of Nazareth. How's that good news? Because John 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believe, believe. They hold it to be true. That He is who He says He is. He gives them the right to be children of God. We are given the perfect righteousness of Jesus as described in the eight adjectives of Philippians 4.8. And that's treated like it describes us. Paul says in verse 7, right before verse 8, the believers can enjoy the peace of God through prayer. And then in verse 9, we're going to find out the next time, he tells us that the God of peace will be with you. All of this is possible because of the very next verse in John 1. In the Word, verse 14, John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace, and truth. We can enjoy the peace of God because the God of peace came to dwell with us. Amen. My challenge is in this Advent season, spend time thinking on, meditating on the person of Jesus Christ in the gift that is ours. We're going to close with a video on a song. You're welcome to sing along if you want. You're welcome 
to sit and listen. A door. A door is the right way to put this sermon into practice this Advent season. A door, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us and we'll have the video. <laughs>